0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. What's life like after prison? For many, it's anything but easy.
1: They've always said you got to pay your debt to society, right? But here I am, after I've paid my debt, it trickles down to my kids.
2: And you're always being judged. And why are you being judged for something that happened 26 years ago? Who I am today has no reflection of who I was at 17.
0: That judgment is baked into state laws and policies in Illinois that affect what kind of jobs people can take where they can live, and how they can contribute to society. A new four-part series that kicks off tonight on WTTW explores the barriers standing in the way of formerly incarcerated people. Marlon Chamberlain is the manager for the Fully Free campaign that seeks to lessen these barriers. His story is also featured in the program. Welcome to Reset, Marlon.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: And Brandis Friedman, who hosts the WTTW series, is also with us. Welcome back, Brandis.
3: Hey Sasha. Hey Marlon.
1: Hello. Good afternoon.
0: Let me start with you, Brandis. What did you set out to do with this series? <sighs> Big question. Um. So I know. I know. I,
3: I of course, I mean, we do it to each other, right? So I, I set out to to sort of take a look at like what are some of these laws, um, but also to kind of you know show folks how these laws are impacting people and to question whether or not you know they're actually serving. Um serving the public, right? You know, are they how are they serving us, if at all? I think the intention for some of them is to keep us safer, but uh the big question is are they?
0: So give us an overview then of how you broke that down into a four
3: episode series. Yeah, so uh the first part, it's the one that we'll see tonight. Uh it is where, for those of you who don't already know Marlon, it is where you get to meet Marlon um and a couple of other people. And that one is the one where we kind of um we, you know, spotlight a few examples of these laws, right? And and how they are written. And and not everything is a law, right? Some of it is, you know, there's de jour, which means it is by law, and there's de facto, which is just kind of the stuff that happens. Um, and to kind of, you know, show how these are actually impacting people and who the people are that are being impacted by uh, the permanent punishment. Uh, Night two, we focus on the women because um, in the last 30, 40 years, the number of women in our prisons across this country has escalated by 475%. um, And some of their challenges are, I know, right? It blows you away. Yeah. Some of their challenges are unique. Uh, The third night, we focused on labor and employment um, just because that one seemed important. It kept cropping up. I mean, we could have focused on housing that night because that's another place where it gets tricky for people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the fourth night, I'm calling it the workarounds, um, but that is, you know, all the the ways that people could potentially have a record cleared and whether or not folks are getting access to those opportunities to have their records cleared.
0: Yeah, and, and the series, Brandis, it points out a startling statistic. Statistic nationally, there are 44,000 laws and policies and rules that restrict what formerly incarcerated people can do. And this is after they've already been involved in the criminal justice system. That's, to me, a very staggering number.
3: Yes, it is. And and we got that from uh, the Paper Prisons Initiative, also from um, one of our experts, Reuben Jonathan Miller at University of Chicago. He's also written a book, Halfway Home. Um, And yes, 44,000 across the country Uh, And and about 1,300 uh, in Illinois alone. Um, And from what I understand, most states have somewhere um, between like 900 and 1,300 uh, by state. And and so Illinois, it's on the higher end.
0: Yeah. Well, let's bring you in here, Marlon. 19,000 of those rules and and labor market, uh, of those rules, they're actually labor market restrictions, right? Mm -hmm. So talk to me about the difficulty you've experienced in finding work with a record. What's that looked like for you?
1: So, for me, um, it, it wasn't necessarily challenging for me because of my support system. Okay, and so I was connected to several employment opportunities because I had a I have a huge support network. But what we've seen and how it play out is through background checks. That's one of the vehicles that's used um, to legally discriminate against people with felony convictions. We we also see occupational licensing. So there may be an, an employment opportunity that a person may be eligible for, but because of their criminal background, they, they're not eligible for the actual license to have the employment opportunity. Mm. Um, and then there are just time barriers where there are certain convictions that basically manifest a lifetime barrier, meaning that you're barred for life. And there's nothing you can do. And then there are some that have time considerations where you may have to wait 10 years to apply for a specific position.
0: And your support network that you mentioned that helped you to avoid that path, was that made up of sort of friends and family? Was that uh, folks you had come across in the past? What what did that look like?
1: So it was a mixture of friends and family, people from my church. Uh, It was a mixture of people.
0: Rallying to help absolutely yeah so when we think of folks who have been formerly incarcerated what kind of jobs are available
1: so in most cases warehouse uh jobs uh temp jobs which could be anything from warehouse to driving a forklift um but basic jobs that that you know people who may be in transition as far as careers um, those are primarily the jobs that we see available for those coming out of incarceration. So like
0: trades and yeah, such? absolutely, trades. But we know that a key to um, uh, re- avoiding you know, recidivism is having a job that gives you a good amount of money. Absolutely. Right? A job that pays well. Absolutely. We want to make sure that people stay out of jail. Don't go back, right? A- absolutely. And they're able to remain. Uh, you know. So how how are people supposed to find work then with all of these restrictions
1: that that is the the question that we're asking and going back to something that Brandis said is when we think about public safety if an individual can't find employment what what are we basically telling this individual right Um, so that is the goal of this campaign is that we want to continue to make the case that we have to create opportunities for people if we want people to truly successfully transition from incarceration.
0: And everything that we are talking about, Marlon, is in addition to the laws and restrictions uh about where folks can live absolutely. and what parts of civic life they can participate in. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so one of the the goals of this campaign is really disrupting the cycle of poverty, because what we believe is that if we can create opportunities, it gives people an opportunity to improve their quality of life through education opportunities, employment, and housing, and so what we want to do is to make the case that if if we want individuals to come home and and to find sustainability, but then we have to create opportunity. So that is the case uh, of the campaign, and we've also seen how a lot of these economic sanctions are really basically like hitting like maybe a few communities. Um, Within the Chicago area. But as we've traveled around the state, we've seen that primarily where there are large pockets of black and brown folks that these barriers exist.
0: Wow. Brandis, how many people are we talking about here in totality that this impacts in the state of Illinois? Like how many people have been arrested or convicted of a crime in the state?
3: So, uh, according to the paper, prison, paper Prisons Initiative, again, they estimate about 3.3 million people in the state of Illinois. Now, that's any kind of criminal record, right? Okay. So that can be an arrest that you've never um, had expunged, um, or you know, an arrest and they got the wrong guy and you were never found guilty. But you know, these the, the paper trail still exists, um, and and so we're also talking about whether or not these folks have had access or. Um, tried to get access to the expungement or record sealing process. Um, obviously, you know, clemency is only granted to, you know, a fraction of, of people who have any sort of record. Yeah. Um, so, so we're talking about a, a large number of people. And, and from what I understand, the Paper Prisons Initiative estimates that of those 3.3 million people with some sort of paper trail, um, 584,000 of them do have convictions.
0: Marlon, you were once incarcerated, right? And mm-hmm. we know the title of this series is permanent punishment. What does that term mean to you personally?
1: So permanent punishment, what, what that means to me is that this is basically a legal sanction that allows employers, landlords, uh, different educational entities to legally discriminate against people because of their record, Um That's how I define permanent punishment laws. And I also just would say that permanent punishment laws are a continuation of redlining or Jim Crow laws. Um, It's just a continuation of what we've seen in the past.
0: These punishments also don't just apply to you, right? Mm -hmm. They trickle down to your children and other family members. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I've had two uh, particular incidents where permanent punishment laws have impacted me one my father passed away last year I'm sorry. um and he left me the executor over his estate but because i have a 20 year old conviction i wasn't allowed to carry out my father's last wishes because of my conviction wow. um, an- absolutely another example my, my from 20 years ago from 20 years ago uh and this is a law from 1975 that's been on the books for for decades mm-hmm. Um. Also, I was uh, I was restricted from being a chaperone uh, on my son, little Marlin's school field trip to a bowling alley, even though his teachers requested that I chaperone uh, my son on this trip because they see how involved I am in my son's education. But I was denied this opportunity because of my conviction. So there are several laws on the books that, how did that make you feel. I I was upset. But I think for the most part, what it does is it motivates me to continue this work Um, because because ultimately what permanent punishment laws do is that there's this perpetual punishment that continues to follow people no matter what they do, like throughout their lifetime.
0: Brandis, are you hearing any justification for some of these rules from, from public officials?
3: For some of them. Right. Um, but honestly, no. And, and and we tried. Right. Like we, we tried to reach out to a, a lot of different uh, public officials um, just because these laws are on the books for a reason. Right. And I, 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 we would like to know why. Um, what was what was the purpose at the time? And does that purpose still hold up today? Um, you know, there was one explanation uh, that we heard about one potential law uh, from a former federal uh, not excuse me, a former judge, former prosecutor, uh, Pat O'Brien, former candidate for Cook County State's attorney as a Republican. There is a particular law that you'll hear about tonight, um, that prevents people with certain convictions from owning an unspayed or unneutered dog. Um, And it sounds kind of ridiculous on its face. This applies, of course, to people with animal cruelty convictions, but it also applies to people who have gun um, or drug convictions in the past. And his explanation for that law is the potential that, you know, if you're dealing in guns or drugs and you need a weapon to protect, you know, your your illegal enterprise, whatever it might be, then sometimes a dog, uh, a particularly vicious dog is used as um, uh, as another weapon, basically, um, to sort of alert you if, if yeah. you know, if someone is trying to steal your guns or your drugs or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and I guess, you know, it's probably not for me to decide, but there was that explanation for that. So there's something. But uh we we're still working on hearing from others and there will be more of course this week uh in addition to the series right. some panel discussions too.
0: Well, you know, Marlon, when we talk about paying a debt to society, what comes up for you? Like do you think there is a debt that people need to pay and if so what what is that?
1: So, I I think the debt that people pay is the time that they serve, whether it's in, in incarceration, whether it's parole or probation. And when a person finishes those stipulations, they should be free to move on. Like the when we were sentenced, we were never told that this debt came with interest. And so when I complete my sentence and all of the stipulations that were laid out for me to complete, mm-hmm. once I complete those, I should be free to move on with my life.
0: People are listening to us right now. Some of them, many of them probably have never been incarcerated. What do you want for them to know about the long-term impact on people's lives?
1: I think everybody's, like people's story doesn't start the day that they're incarcerated. And so what I would tell people is that we have to look at the complete story. We have to look at what happened that led this person um, to their incarceration or their arrest or conviction. And then we also have to look at, like, what this individual did, why they were incarcerated, because the the demographic of folks that we're advocating for are individuals who have been out, who are in college, that are married, that are homeowners, like myself. So we're talking about the opposite end of the recidivism rate, which is around maybe around 50 to 60% mm-hmm. of those individuals who come out and stay out. We're saying, when does it end for us?
0: We'll leave it there for now. That is Marlon Chamberlain, who's featured in WTTW's Permanent Punishment series, which you can catch tonight at 7 p.m. Thank you, Marlon. Thank you. Brandis Friedman will stay with us. Back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. Before the break, we talked about how being incarcerated makes it very difficult to find work and even to serve as the executor of a parent's estate. These restrictions are a major part of life after prison, and they're the focus of a new series from WTTW. It's called Permanent Punishment, and it kicks off tonight. It's a double whammy, though, for women. Half of women behind bars are mothers, and many of them are the primary caregivers for their families. WTTW host and correspondent Brandis Friedman is still with us. And joining us now is Celia Colon, founder of Giving Others Dreams. Celia is living with some of these punishments, and her story is featured in the four-part series. Hi, Celia. Welcome.
2: Hi. Good morning, and I thank you guys for inviting me to this very important call and topic.
0: Sure. In your opinion, Celia, how do these permanent punishments impact men and women differently?
2: Well, I would say these permanent punishments attack men and and women differently because we face different barriers and programming that's mandated when you release from prison, especially if you are a mother or you're a guardian and you have, you know, full custody of your children. Right. So to receive your children, to gain full custody back when you come home, there is usually mandated if your children are with the state. Right. And held with DCFS or in ward of the state. I think they changed the terminology, but, you know, mm-hmm. that part um, you'll have man mandatory mandated supervised visits. At the beginning, which is okay, but as someone coming home trying to reenter society, trying to do every, all the requirements that they want you to do, right? So I always like to say that women are stuck in this very sick, depressive, oppressive mm. circle of destruction because when I come home and a male comes home, let's say we have the same case, same time, and we go to the same place to get a job, which usually they're not really good jobs, they're very low-wage you know, wage jobs usually at a factory somewhere, Mm -hmm. and we both get the job. But then I have to go around and tell my boss as soon as they hire me that, you know what, for the next 90 days I need to take off a half a day once a week or maybe twice a week because I have mandated supervised visits to see my children. And if I don't show up, it shows that I don't want my children and I'm not trying to be involved and I don't want them back. You can't dangle somebody's children especially a mother in front of them. My children are always going to win. So regardless, you know, we're doing the parenting classes, but now you have to go through not just the visits, parenting classes, anger management, substance abuse evaluation. Even if your case had nothing to do with substance abuse, they make you do alcohol, anger management, a lot of different mandated programming to prove that you're worthy be a mother, even though you were a mother before you left. And I would also like to say that 97% of the women incarcerated have crimes that are not violent. Only 3% of women go to prison for violent crimes. 97% of them are due to poverty. And that they also, the Women's Justice Institute did a study last year and it was proven that 86 percent of the women that were in prison right now in Illinois had a probationable or a community um, crime that they could have served time in the community serving the community instead of you know costing taxpayers way more money and causing generational harm.
0: Wow lots of information there Brandis, and I know it gets even more complicated how does domestic abuse play in here?
2: That's even more horrible. So with um, G.O.D., with Giving Others Dreams, half of my women are women coming out of a carcel system, so, you know, treatment center, jails, prisons. The other half are DV survivors or women that are fleeing DV right now, and that's who we serve as women in crisis, you know, and these survivors come home living with the fact that they you know committed this crime and didn't want to do what they did but their life was in danger and you know things happened and their loved one is gone so they have to live with that guilt and that pain right yeah. then they come home and they get put on called what's called a violent registry where they also have the sex offenders and you know all these other subgroups all can you know all thrown on one list in one bucket which totally destroys that woman and that whole family's life because now the woman can't live near a school with her children who need to go to that school because of the barriers of being on this horrific violent you know registry for 10 20 years however the court imposes that yeah so there's lots of barriers there as well and housing is the foundation to everything and we know scientifically if we don't have a home it totally interrupts Our way of living, our physical health, our mental health, our spiritual health, our emotional health. Right. How is one supposed to move forward if they can't even live somewhere? So that means their kids can't live anywhere either. Again, generational harms. I always like to say that our innocent children are living and paying debts to society with their innocent lives for something they they didn't do.
0: Well, well, speaking of children, Celia, I want you to talk about how this has impacted your uh, ability to be a guardian to your late sister's kids.
2: So my sister, um, unfortunately, her name is Guadalupe Lupita Lopez, was shot and killed the day before her birthday on November 20th, 2020, Um, because of my background. I was told by a family attorney that I couldn't file to get custody of my sister's children um, because of my issue with having a record, even though the record's 27 years old and it happened when I was a child. And I've been home for 21 years, and I tell people no matter how many awards I get, no matter how many degrees I get, no matter how many things I do in the community, it's like I always have to prove that I am worthy to live on this planet and have the same human experience as everybody else. And I like to say that everybody has the power to change at any given time. We are made of water. And just like water, we're always moving forward. We're always in transformation. And there's not one person on this planet who is the same exact person as they were a year ago or five years ago. Because things happen. Experiences happen. Right? We're inundated with data, with knowledge. Everybody's always in the process of transformation. So why is it that someone with a record cannot have that same human experience as everybody else on this planet?
0: Brandis, I want to bring you back in here because I know you and I, we are both mothers, right? So from that standpoint, we can relate to what Celia is talking about. But as as you were reporting for this series, I, I wonder what are some of the stories that you've heard that just stuck with you?
3: Um, well, there is there's, of course, Celia's story Um it, but there's also, uh, there's a woman that you'll get to meet tomorrow night. Her name is Tamisha. Um, and the crime that she, uh, went to prison for having committed, you know, I think about 10 or so years ago, she was very young at the time. And as Celia says, it was a crime of poverty. She was in a desperate situation. Um, a gas bill needed to be paid. Um, and, you know, she, she does what she does and it ends up being on the news later on. And that, just kind of floored her, right? Like she couldn't believe that this had happened and that this was her. And, but, you know, now she, she has worked hard to, you know, she's been home for a couple of years and she has worked very hard. She has managed to get custody of her children back mm-hmm. and she has managed to, you know, to get an apartment. Um, And she struggled to get that apartment. Right. But she did it. And, I, I, I'm careful to say who's the exception or who's not, right? Just because you know, a lot of folks can do really well if they're given really good opportunities and chances. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't necessarily, um, but she did it. And I don't want to celebrate the bootstraps uh, concept either because that's not that's not the case here. Um, but she's had to go through, you know, some of that intense scrutiny with DCFS in order to gain custody of her children back. And so that's just one of the stories that stands out, you know, on... On Thursday night, you know, you'll meet another woman or a couple of women really who've, you know, they've struggled with work, um, but now they are in the Chicago Women in Trades program and the trades are felony friendly and they've mm-hmm. got dreams now and they're learning and can earn a good income yeah. when they get there.
0: You know, Brandis, Celia talked a lot about that trickle down effect, right? How widespread would you say it is um, that the permanent punishments that moms experience end up affecting their kids?
3: It absolutely ends up, you know, affecting their kids for a number of reasons, right? Like if moms are the primary caregivers and then mom goes away to prison for however many years – um, imagine the impact of any one of our children losing their mom, the way these children lost their moms for those years. And being able to maintain that contact while they're in prison is so crucial, but it can be very difficult. Um, and then, you know, as a mother, when you come home, you want to be able to jump right back in, but that's, that's not necessarily right. um, so easy. Uh, one of the women that we interviewed who you'll meet tomorrow night, Maria, she, she doesn't say this in the, in the story that you see, but, you know, she says she wanted to be able to jump back in, and it's it, while she was away in prison, you have to sort of detach from the life that you don't have anymore, and it's not like a a flip that you can just switch when you come back and poof, you know you're the same mom that you were before, and these are the same kids, and it's all gonna work out um and so that's another story that yeah. that sticks out but of course there's there's the ripple effect, the trauma from having lost a parent for those years um and kind of reckoning with what happened mm-hmm. uh and then that the trauma of that parent also struggling to get back on their feet. When they return, uh, the scrutiny under which, you know, a mom may be when she's going through these classes that are difficult to access um, and being scrutinized by DCFS.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the permanent punishments that exist for people long after they've spent time behind bars. Brandis Friedman is host of WTTW's four-part series on this topic. And we're also talking with Celia Colon. She was incarcerated and her story is featured in that series Celia, you know, we hear a lot on the outside about the efforts to seal people's records. But in your case, that wasn't enough. Can you talk more about that?
2: Well, uh, I had my record sealed in 2008. And even though my record was sealed because of the way um, the system works, right, and, you know, everything that's entered in the system is done by humans, right? So there's always, you know, room for human error, I would say. And all the court systems, of nobody doesn't know in Illinois, are not connected. So, like, Cook County clerk is not connected to the court, uh, Cook County clerks in Maywood and so forth, right, in different communities. So when I get my record sealed, it's supposed to hit all of the clerks, right? The state's supposed to know. All Everybody's supposed to be informed that this has happened, right? But I feel like in many spaces a lot of people disregard that issue, Um I recently went through something when my daughter was graduating from eighth grade. I had my record sealed and um even though it was sealed when I went to fill out a form to chaperone because we had got a new principal. The principal that I had before knew who I was, mm-hmm. knew of the work that I did and you know, I my kid been in the same Catholic school since she's been three. Always, you know, very involved parent, didn't have an issue. So when this new principal came, he's like, I need you to take a background test. I was like, Sure, no problem. Well, he didn't tell me what it came back to until three weeks before it was time for eighth grade graduation with all the celebrations, right? right. They called me to tell me, Miss Cologne, we're sorry to tell you that you cannot volunteer. Basically, I couldn't be a parent. It was what they were telling me. I mm. couldn't volunteer. I couldn't decorate. I couldn't go on an eighth grade trip to chaperone and watch my daughter be a child.
0: So and tell me, does, does that make you feel like you're being judged? I'm being, I'm be- yeah.
2: I'm being judged. My child is facing and about to have generational harm. She's about to wear my number that she doesn't deserve to wear just because somebody somewhere decided that, you know, I couldn't be a human and make a mistake and make a bad decision. And I did what the courts told me. I've stayed out of trouble for 21 years. I've opened up three businesses. You know, I'm a community leader, advocate, do national systematic change work. And all of that's still not good enough for something that happened when I was 17, 18 years old. And I didn't stand for it. I threatened them, and I told them that I was bringing all of my, you know, national news friends and reporters and that I was going to chain myself to their school and that I was going to bring attention to this. And they told me, Miss Cologne, you can come, but don't tell nobody. Hmm. Because I decided that my child was not going to go through this. I cried, I got upset, and I said, how many times do I have to keep proving that I'm worthy of being a mom. My daughter wasn't even a thought in my eye when I went away. She's 14 at this time. Mm. You know, I, I was 18 when I went away. I didn't right. know I was going to grow up and get married and have children, and then they have to face and c- the consequences of my of your childhood.
0: Yeah. yeah. So how are you, how are you focused on healing then, Celia? Like how, <laughs> how does and, and how does this healing help that next generation?
2: So that's what we do. Uh G.O.D. has a training and healing center in South Chicago on 8920 South Commercial. And every Wednesday we have something called Wellness Wednesday where we expose people to different forms of therapy. We do art therapy, sound therapy, light therapy, yoga, all very, you know, mindfulness. Everything is focused on trauma-informed healing. Mm-hmm. We encourage wellness. And we feel that we can't tell someone what's going to work for them. But if we expose people to different forms of therapy, right, dancing, I mean, I can go through a list of what we do. They will find their zen, and then they will implement that and make it a lifestyle to hopefully take it to the home and start teaching their children to make wellness first. Everything starts with the mind. And if we're able to change one's thoughts, we're able to change one's heart, And we're able to change somebody's experiences.
0: And if you briefly can tell me about the Free Her Conference that you spent time at this weekend.
2: Oh, so the Free Her is a national, well, international movement. It's impacted women and families come from all over the world together to brainstorm, to work collectively on system change. Right now, what we're focusing on on is creating, um, you know, this support network to help close prisons and jails everywhere, and give an alternate way of dealing with society problems. We can't keep punishing people and harming people and thinking that that's going to fix America. We know hurt people hurt people and heal people heal people. So if we help people thrive by giving them amazing opportunities, great supportive environments. Just like plants and animals, right? They they're given the right environment. Right, thrive, they can thrive, and that's what we're looking for. Everyone wants to live in peace. Everybody well, wants to be safe.
0: Well, we're just and about that happens, out of time.
2: Right, as a community.
0: Yeah, no, this is. I'm so glad you're sharing your story, Celia Brandis. Tell us where can folks tune in to watch the full series. Remind us.
3: Well, Sasha, I'm glad you asked, obviously, <laughs> tonight on Chicago Tonight at 7, um, but then, of course, it'll be uh, posted online, uh, wttw.com slash news, where you'll also find a list of the resources, including Salia's organization, Marlon's mm-hmm. organization, and so many others that we encountered, live streaming on our website uh, and our Facebook and YouTube pages as well.
0: That's Brandis Friedman, co-host of Chicago Tonight and WTTW's four-part series Permanent Punishment that premieres tonight at 7. We've also been talking with Celia Colon, founder of Giving Others Dreams. Thank you both.